2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10. Our topic, the premillennial heresy. The premillennial heresy. And I'm going to read from 2 Thessalonians. You'll know why in a minute. And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes. In that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of the calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. We'll stop there. We're talking about premillennialism, which is by far the most popular of the eschatological views in the 20th century and even today. <clears throat> it is the view that Jesus Christ will return and he will establish a earthly empire from Jerusalem for 1,000 literal years. It's based on Revelation chapter 20. And uh, so Christ's second coming is before the millennium, before his reign, his earthly reign, and uh, not after. Post-millennialism. Christ rules with post-millennialism and amillennialism. Uh, Christ rules from the resurrection till the second coming, although old-fashioned post-millennialism of the Puritans, there'll be a thousand-year golden age. Uh, that's generally not believed anymore except by a few people, but that's the general view of post-millennialism. It's that Christ rules from heaven and he will have victory. Uh, they teach that at the second coming of Christ, now this is historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism, Christ returns, second coming, the rapture happens, the same day he comes back, this is historic, classical premillennialism, he comes back, the rapture happens, uh, there's a judgment, and then there's a thousand-year reign. Dispensational premillennialism is different in that they believe that there'll, there'll be a pre-tribulation rapture seven years at the beginning of the tribulation, which they believe is still future, and then Christ will become at the end of the seven years, and then he'll establish a thousand-year reign. So those are the differences. <clears throat> then after the thousand years are over, uh, near an end, there'll be a vast rebellion against Christ ruling in Jerusalem, and the whole earth will turn against Christ militarily, and the saints will be holed up in Jerusalem, and they'll be delivered uh, by Christ by fire from heaven. Which is kind of bizarre when you think that uh, in the premillennial view, you're going to have resurrected saints with glorified bodies, with Christ who has a glorified body. He can't be killed. You can't kill Christ. He can pass through walls. A bullet would go right through him. Uh, so you have this rebellion against these people who can't be killed. It's, it's bizarre, but that's what people believe. It's the most popular view. <clears throat> and, of course, there are pre-tribulation views of the rapture, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation rapturists. Uh, now, how they argue against, you know, I, when I talk about post-millennialism, we're talking about either the Puritan version, where there's a golden age, or the modern post-millennial view of people like Greg Bonson and Ken Gentry, which is more of a, uh, the view that the, the rule is from the resurrection until the second coming. Uh, it's a general period, and there'll be progress, and there there will be great progress, and there will be a golden age, so to speak, but it doesn't necessarily equal 1,000 years, literally. They don't take these numbers literally. 
they're symbolic. And if you look at the number of thousand, it's very symbolically used in Scripture. But premillennials say, well, our view is the literal interpretation. We take Revelation chapter 20 literally, which says there will be a thousand-year reign. We take that all literally. And so they say, if you don't hold to our view, you're not being a literalist. You're not holding, you're not taking Scripture seriously. Now, there's a big myth about that because when you interpret Scripture, when you do uh, hermeneutics, exegesis of Scripture, you have to look and see in the context, is it meant to be taken literally? And if it's meant to be taken literally, you should take it literally. But sometimes it's not meant to be taken literally. And when you look at the book of Revelation, which is full of all kinds of crazy symbolism, the burning of incense representing the saints, prayers, and uh, all sorts of symbolism, it's not meant to be taken literally. And they don't take it literally. The myth of literal versus non-literal interpretation. Uh, they talk about attack helicopters. They talk about nuclear weapons going off. They talk about uh, the Chinese coming and Russia attacking from the north and all these things. So they don't hold to a literal interpretation at all. So the issue is not literal versus non-literal. The issue is, uh, can you defend your position using the context and the type of literature we're talking about? When we talk about the book of Revelation, it's called apocalyptic literature. And it's highly symbolic. You know, the beasts that come out of the earth, who have hair like a woman and teeth like a, you know, are, is that, are, are those literal beings? Or is that symbolizing something? And I, I just think that you have to be careful of this. Well, we're literal and they're not. Nonsense. Premillennials, read Hal Lindsey. He's not literal at all in many places. You know, he talks about attack helicopters and nuclear weapons and, and UFOs and all kinds of things. So that's, that's an error. And then we want to talk about the day of the Lord. Now, and just before I do that, um, one of the problems is, uh, are you going to take, if you take Revelation chapter 20 literally, which is what premillennialists do, and it was called chillism. It was popular. Premillennialism was popular, pretty popular in the ancient church, uh, you know, the post-apostolic church. And it's become increasingly popular after 1850 in the United States and Europe. But before that, it was not that popular. It was not the predominant view. It would be amillennialism and postmillennialism. Postmillennialism was by far the predominant view among the Puritans and Reformed people until recently. Most are amillennial now because they're defeatists and they don't think the Great Commission will be fulfilled in history. But you have the, you have the option. Are we going to take Revelation 20 literally, which, you know, is obviously wrong, uh, or are you going to interpret Revelation 20 in light of the many clear passages throughout the epistles, which are not apocalyptic literature, which tell us uh, how the final day comes to pass? What Greg Bonson called the unity of the eschatological complex. The second coming of the rapture, the second coming, the meeting of the saints in the air, the coming to earth, the final judgment, and the beginning of the eternal state all begin on the same day, the day of the Lord according to the Gospels and according to the Epistles. Are you going to take, are you going to try to reinterpret everything that's clear in light of your view of Revelation 20, or are you going to do it the other way around and take the dozens of passages and use that in your interpretation of Revelation 20? So that's the issue. Let's look at the day of the Lord. So, the premillennial position is Christ is going to return. The saints are going to be resurrected. They're going to get their glorified bodies. 
and then they're going to rule a thousand years, and then the final judgment will occur, and then the wicked will be judged. So the premillennialist believes that there's a thousand-year gap between the second coming of Christ and the final judgment. A thousand-year gap. And yet there will be saints living during the thousand years with glorified bodies that can't die, that can't marry, or given in marriage, dwelling alongside people who are uh, getting married and still sinning and dying. That's pretty bizarre to think about. So the resurrection of the saints and the resurrection of the wicked are separated by a thousand years. Does the Bible teach that there is a thousand year gap between the second coming of Christ and the final judgment? Does it teach that there's a thousand-year gap between the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked? And there is no gap. If we look at the passages that talk about this very clearly, there is no gap. And if there is no gap, premillennialism is wrong. The Gospels and the Epistles present a unified picture of the second coming and the judgment by Jesus Christ. The second coming of Christ, the rapture, the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked... And the judgment of the righteous and the wicked are all to occur on the same day. The Apostle Paul teaches that when Christ returns, he will take vengeance on the wicked. The wicked will receive everlasting destruction, but Christ will dwell with the saints. All who believe will admire and glorify Christ. When will this occur? According to Paul, on that day, singular. The day of the Lord. Now, I understand if you do, I wrote a paper uh, on the day of the Lord a long time ago. The day of the Lord is used in two senses in Scripture. The day of the Lord is often just a, a day of judgment. And we find that in the prophets in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is coming. But then there's the day of the Lord with capital letters, and that refer, always refers to the second coming and final judgment. The day of the Lord. Here's the passage again. Listen, listen to what it says. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10. When the Lord Jesus was revealed from heaven with his mighty angels... What is he going to do? In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. So is there a thousand year gap between the destruction of the wicked and the glorification of the saints? And the answer is absolutely not. They both occur on that day. Does Christ crush the wicked from his throne in Jerusalem? And the answer is no. He is revealed from heaven. Is it a secret rapture? No, there's a great trumpet blast. And every eye shall see him. On the final day, Christ comes from heaven to judge all men both the righteous and the wicked. The reward of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked are interwoven with each other as to time and made to follow both them immediately on the coming of the Lord. So this passage makes it absolutely clear that there is no secret rapture to be followed by an interval of seven years by an, uh, an open revelation of the Lord and his glory to the world. Surely it is clear that since the coming of the Lord brings the wicked eternal destruction, from the face of the Lord, there is no wicked who will survive his coming to be ruled over during a millennium. But according to the premillennial scheme, there must be wicked people surviving for Christ to rule over 
as a dictator from Jerusalem. But Thessalonians makes it crystal clear that when he comes back, it's time to go to the lake of fire. It's not you're going to survive on earth and be ruled over by a dictator in Jerusalem. Do you understand the, what Thessalonians is teaching? Now, does the Apostle Paul teach that Christ will return to earth and then set up a thousand-year reign which is to be followed by a final judgment? And the answer is no, he does not. Paul says that the second coming of Christ and the glorification of the saints will occur immediately prior to the eternal state. So Paul does not teach a thousand-year gap, which is what premillennialism requires. He does not teach a thousand-year gap that exists between the second coming and the end of the earthly human history. Listen to what this says here. And this is very clear. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 23-25 and 50-54. to 54. I want you to pay really close attention to what Paul says. Paul has, uh, is inspired. Charles Nelson Darby is not. <coughs> but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward those are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. Second coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers his, the kingdom to the, God the Father, when he puts an end to all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not sleep, we should all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Okay, he's talking about the, the glorification of the body. Those who are in the graves will arise to the resurrection unto life. They'll receive new glorified bodies that cannot sin, that cannot die. Those who are alive at his coming receive glorified bodies that cannot sin or cannot die. Here's the order. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying what is written, Death is swallowed up by victory. So what does Paul say? Christ returns. The saints receive immortal glorified bodies. Then comes the end. There's nothing about a thousand year reign of Christ on earth followed by the end. Then comes the end. So 1 Corinthians and Thessalonians, both are in total agreement. They're both in total agreement. And so when we look at Revelation 20, which is an apocalyptic passage, it's highly symbolic, uh, we want to be careful and interpret that in light of these clear didactic passages in the epistles. There's no 1,000-year earthly kingdom, for when Christ returns, he delivers the kingdom to the Father. Furthermore, after Christ returns, death is completely destroyed and abolished. How can there be converts in the millennium who live, have children, and die if death is abolished at the second coming? The whole design of this latter portion of this chapter is to show that after the resurrection, the bodies of believers will be like the glorious body of the Son of God, adapted to a heavenly, not an earthly condition. And if you look at Revelation 19 and 20 and so forth, heaven and earth, so, so to speak, in a sense, merge. There's no more death, there's no more crying, there's no more tears, there's no more sickness. Everything is paradise. That's what it speaks about the second coming of Christ. So, this idea that there's a thousand years where people are still sinning and dying, and then at the end there's a giant rebellion against Christ, it just doesn't fit. 
The Apostle Paul teaches that both the righteous and the wicked will be judged on the same day. Romans 2, 5 to 8. Listen to this. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing seek good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Does he say anything about a thousand-year gap between those two events? Absolutely not. They occur on the same day, the day of the Lord, the same day the rapture occurs, the same day the eternal state begins, the same day that the, the wicked are cast in the lake of fire. There is no thousand-year gap. Christ's second coming is always associated in Scripture with the final judgment of all men. And this will occur in the day when God will judge the secrets of man by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, Romans 2.16. And if you look at what cults do, and if you look at what heresies, people who teach heresy, what they do, they take they misinterpret a singular passage, and then they try to hammer everything else that contradicts it in the whole New Testament into their paradigm. And with premillennialism, it doesn't work. It just does not work. There's no way to do it other than to simply ignore all these passages that talk about the return of Christ and the final judgment occurring on the same day. The final judgment of both the righteous and the wicked and the eternal state beginning on the same day. The end of death occurring on the same day. There is no more death. A thousand years requires a thousand years of people living and dying. The Apostle Paul always teaches in his epistles that the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, the reward of the righteous and the condemnation of the wicked occur in the same day, the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-9 and 9-10. Listen to this. But concerning, and they're asking him about the second coming. And here's what Paul says. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they, that is unbelievers, shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So Paul associates the second coming of Christ with the glorification of the saints. The second coming of Christ is tied with the resurrection and the ensuing glory of the saints and the sudden destruction of the wicked. Without the shadow of a doubt, that day has its reference to both parties. Believers are to look for it, first First Thessalonians 5, 4 to 10, for they shall, uh, then they shall obtain salvation in its fullness, verse 9. Then they shall live together with him, verse 10. While that same day will be the, bring the false security of unbelievers to an end in their sudden destruction. So the destruction of the wicked, the salvation in the fullest sense of the term, the glorification and full salvation of the righteous are tied together at the same time, the same day. There is no thousand-year gap. And Paul does not tell the Thessalonians that a secret rapture will occur seven years prior to the second coming. The rapture occurs in the same day that the wicked are judged. 
If the wicked receive sudden destruction while the saints are glorified, no one is left to populate the earth during the premillennial thousand-year reign. All the saints receive glorified bodies, and all the wicked are judged and cast into hell and destroyed, eternal destruction and hell. There is nobody left to populate the earth because once you're glorified, you can't have children anymore. There's no more marriage anymore. We'll look back at marriage and those type of things um, as, you know, like looking back at ants. It'll be beyond us. It's a, it's a wonderful thing on earth. We need it to populate the earth. But once Christ comes, we'll be like the angels in heaven, Jesus says, as far as that goes. <clears throat> After Christians receive their heavenly glorified bodies, they do not marry and they do not bear children. Who then is there to rebel against Christ at the end of a thousand-year earthly reign? The glorified saints certainly cannot rebel. They're sinless and they cannot sin. And the unbelievers are all suffering torment in the lake of fire. So who is there to rebel at the end of the thousand-year reign? And the answer is there isn't anybody. The thousand-year reign is symbolic, and it represents the period of the spread of the gospel. It's a thousand. The, the word, the term "a thousand" is used is an indefinite thing in Scripture, signifying a, a very long period of time. It's already been almost two thousand years, and it's going to continue probably for a thousand or two more. Certainly, Paul would not have written these words if he had been looking for a secret rapture. There's nothing here to indicate that Christians are to be raptured away seven years before the day of judgment. Rather, they are to receive relief from tribulation and suffering at, and here, these are Paul's words, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel. Now, what do premillennialists, what do dispensationalists teach about the rapture? Well, all the Christians are just going to disappear and everybody's going to be all, where'd they go? Planes are going to crash. Cars are going to crash in the freeway. Well, that's not what Paul says. Paul says that when Christ comes back, the saints are going to get glorified bodies and the unbelievers, they're all going to get cast into hell by Christ. So you, you can't have a secret rapture there. If Christians are to be secretly raptured away from the earth seven years before Christ's second coming, then why do scriptures repeatedly tell us that Christians are to remain on earth until the revelation of Christ? The resurrection of the righteous and the wicked at the final judgment both occur on the same day, the day of the Lord. And you can look these passages up later. Matthew 13, 47 to 50. Matthew 25, 31 to 34 and 41 and 46, John 5, 28 to 29, 6, 3 to 40, and 44, Romans 2, 5 to 8 and 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 4, 9 to 10, etc. This is taught throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Peter totally agrees with Paul's teaching regarding Christ's second coming. There's no difference of opinion, because it's not opinion, they received it from the Holy Spirit. In his second epistle, he deals with scoffers who deny the second coming of Christ. This is 2 Peter 3, 4 to 12. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. 
Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, what does Hal Lindsey and a lot of premillennials say? Dispensational. Oh, he's talking about nuclear weapons. That's not what he's talking about. This order, as we know it, is going to be dissolved, and a new order will come out of it, in which there is no more death, or suffering, or sickness, or disease, or sin. Peter teaches that the second coming of the day of judgment and the beginning of the final state occur contemporaneously. Like Paul, Peter says that these events occur on the day of the Lord. Now, according to premillennialism, Christ does not come in the day of judgment because he is already on earth ruling from Jerusalem. But Peter says that when Christ returns, the judgment occurs and then the heavens and earth are destroyed. The premillennialist believes that Christ will return and rule on earth for a thousand years before the elements are destroyed. Thus, Peter's account of Christ's coming totally contradicts premillennial doctrine. And that's one, did you notice that in, in Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians, uh, Matthew 20, and, 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 and other passages? Christ comes to judge. The second coming, he comes from where? He comes from heaven. He's right now, he's ruling at the right hand of God in heaven. And when he comes back to judge the world, he comes from heaven. Well, premillennialism has to deny that. They have to say, no, he's ruling on earth for a thousand years. Then... From earth, he will judge the wicked. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Gospels say. That's not what the Epistles say. That's not what Paul says. That's not what Peter says. Premillennials teach that there's a thousand-year gap between the resurrection of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked. They teach that the bodily resurrection of the wicked occurs at the end of the millennium. But the parables of Jesus Christ totally contradict premillennial doctrine. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus said that both will grow together until the harvest. Matthew 13, 30. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The harvest obviously refers to the final judgment. The tares and the wheat, the tares are counterfeit Christians, phony Christians, that are working to oppose Christ's kingdom, they're going to grow through history together. But when Christ returns, one's going to be gathered up to be cast into the lake of fire, and the other's going to be with Christ in heaven, in paradise, or on a recreated earth. At last the separation shall be such that all the wicked shall be cast into hell fire, and the godly placed in heaven, or the heavenly state. How about Matthew 25? In Matthew 25, Jesus instructed his disciples with regard to the second coming. Here's a 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, it's obviously the second coming, and all the holy angels with him, Thessalonians tells us that the angels come with him, and he takes, in flaming fire, takes vengeance, and it's announced by the loud trumpet blast. It's not a secret rapture. It's not a secret coming. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left hand. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
So what do we have here? Christ describes the second coming, and he describes a general judgment of all men, both righteous and the wicked, at the same time. And this judgment of the righteous and the wicked results in eternal life for the righteous and eternal condemnation, hellfire for the wicked, the unbelievers, the enemies of God. When does it occur? At the second coming of Christ. There's no thousand-year gap. There's no separation of the judgment of the righteous and the wicked. There's no pre-tribulation rapture in there. It's not there. The average Christian believes that Matthew 25, 31-36 is a picture of the last judgment, and he's right. But the premillennialist has to explain this passage away because it does not fit into his prophetic scheme. In his interpretation, he has to forsake the literal interpretation of Matthew 25, which he so often, you know, oh, we, we follow the literal translation, the literal view. He has to explain that all the nations are not all nations, and that the nations that are there are only repre there representatively. And there is nothing in this passage to indicate this. It is a clear picture of the last and universal judgment. And if it was there in isolation, like Revelation 20, you might want to have a debate. But it agrees with Paul in Romans. It agrees with Paul in Thessalonians. It agrees with Peter. It agrees with John in the Gospel of John. It agrees with all the Gospel accounts. It agrees with all the, parable, the parables that talk about the second coming. They all agree. So you might want to take Revelation 20, uh, not hyper-literalistically, but take it as apocalyptic literature describing the reign of Christ on earth as he reigns from heaven. Now, Jesus taught plainly that there will be a general resurrection in which all men are to be raised in the same day. He did not say that some will be raised and the rest will be raised after a thousand years, or for the dispensationalist, after 1,007 years. This is what he says, John 5, 28 to 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Not only does that happen on the same day, it happens at the same hour. Christ couldn't be any more clear. There's no thousand-year gap there, is there? Or a thousand and seven years, if you're a dispensationalist. The idea that the resurrection of the righteous is to occur a thousand years or a thousand and seven years before the uh, end of the world is contradicted by Jesus four more times in John chapter 6. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Read John 6, 39 to 40, and see also 44 and 54. Four times Jesus contradicts premillennial, premillennialism. The last day is the day of judgment. There are no other days besides the last day. It's called the last day. It's called the day of the Lord. It's called the day of Christ. It's called the, the day of judgment. It's called the last day for a reason. Now, the dispensational answer to these objections is to argue that there is a secret rapture before the seven-year tribulation. All Christians will be removed from the earth at that time, but during the seven-year tribulation, there will be a mass conversion of Jews upon the earth. 
These post-rapture saints will have children and thus provide new unglorified believers for a general resurrection of the judgment at the end of the millennium. Well, the problem with this view is that the Bible simply does not teach a secret rapture seven years prior to Jesus' second coming. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-10, Paul says this, that the same day Christ comes to be glorified by his saints is the very same day he returns in flaming fire to judge the wicked. The same day. That's what Paul says. It happens on the same day. Are we going to take Paul literally? It's not a difficult passage. The same day, Paul says. Paul comforts the church with the blessed hope. Christ will return in flaming fire and he will judge those who have been troubling the church. Per the persecutors will be judged. The saints will be glorified. Yes, things are pretty bad right now. The Romans are killing Christians. The Jews are persecuting Christians and their Roman counterparts are putting them to death. Paul says, take comfort. A day is coming in which those wicked people are going to be judged by Christ and cast in the lake of fire, and you're going to be glorified. The same day. The same day. In dispensational thinking, there is no flaming judgment associated with the church return of Christ. For them, it's a secret rapture that nobody knows about. And the passage they quote says that Christ is coming with a trumpet blast. And all the angels come in flaming fire to judge the wicked. That is not a secret rapture, people. Is there a rapture? Yeah. But the rapture happens at the second coming and the same day of the final judgment. There is no seven-year period. And uh, I have some sermons and I have some good articles on my website, reformedonline.com, about how the secret rapture was invented in the 1800s by a false prophetess uh, and was picked up by Charles Nelson Darby and others. Paul places the blessed hope in conjunction with Christ's glorious appearing, also in Titus 2.13. For Paul, the rapture and public visible second coming are coterminous. They are not separated by seven years. Furthermore, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 explicitly teaches the rapture is a public event, not secret. Listen to what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Does that sound like a secret rapture to you? If the rapture were to occur seven years before the second coming of Christ, then everyone could calculate the year, month, and day of the second coming. But Jesus said no one knows the day or hour of his coming in Matthew 13, 32. If there's a seven-year period, then all you'd have to do is go, okay, everybody, everybody disappeared and those planes crashed on December 23rd. Seven years from now, on December 23rd, Jesus is coming back. But the Bible's crystal clear. Nobody knows. It's a secret. Nobody knows. But if there is a seven-year pre-tribulation rapture, then everybody will know. Or at least those people who were converted during that, you know, the supposed mass conversion of Jews during that period. There isn't a shred of evidence in the Bible for a secret rapture seven years prior to second visible coming. The secret rapture theory cannot be found in the church prior to 1830. Here's what Oswald T. Alice wrote. The question which confronts us is this. If the distinction between the rapture and the appearing is of a great moment as dispensationalists assert, how are we to explain Paul's failure to distinguish clearly between them? And the failure of other writers, Peter, James, and John, do the same. To do the same. Paul was a logician. He was able to draw sharp distinctions. If he had wanted or regarded it important to distinguish between these events, he would have done so very easily. 
He could have done so very easily. Why did he use language which dispensationists must admit to be confusing? Feinberg, and a noted dispensational scholar, made the following surprising statement regarding the three words we have been discussing. Quote, we conclude then that from a study of the Greek words themselves, the distinction between the coming of the Lord for his saints and the coming uh, for his saints and with his saints is not to be gleaned. End of quote. Such an admission raises the question whether the distinction itself is valid. If the distinction is of importance, Paul's ambiguous language is, what well, may we say reverently, inexcusable. If the distinction is negligible, accuracy of statement would be quite unnecessary. We conclude, therefore, that the language of the New Testament, and especially of Paul, not merely fails to prove the distinction insisted on by dispensations, but rather by its very ambiguity indicates clearly and unmistakably that there is no such distinction exists. So I hope you see why we are not premillennial. To give you an idea how rare premillennialism was among reform people, Charles Grandison Finney, that Pelagian heretic, that damnable heretic, his parents, he was raised in a Presbyterian church in, I believe, upstate New York, I could be wrong, somewhere in New England. And his family were premillennial. And the Presbyterian elders of that church asked them to leave and go find another church that they did not accept premillennialism as a legitimate form of eschatology. That was in a much more dogmatic age. And then another one, the chronological fallacy. <clears throat> the premillennialist position with regard to Revelation 19 and 20 is that chapter 19 describes the second coming of Christ, while chapter 20 describes Christ's reign on earth. Granted, if one casually reads these two chapters, the premillennial position looks somewhat tenable. But if one closely examines these two chapters, it will be seen that the premillennial position is simply can't be true. The premillennial literist approach to these chapters is self-contradictory and suffers from insurmountable interpretive difficulties. The premillennial position is that the events of chapter 20 follow the events of chapter 19 chronologically. In the second half of chapter 19, Christ returns and judges the nations. Then in chapter 20, he reigns over the nations. But, if we follow their position to its logical consistency, if we take chapter 19 literally, which is what they say we have to do, there are no nations for Christ to rule over in chapter 20. Now listen to this. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. This is chapter 19. Goes a sharp sword that he should, with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the rind price of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come, and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This is uh, 19, 15 to 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So what does it say? All will be killed by the sword, and all of the, them, their flesh, will be eaten by the birds. And the Bible makes it very clear that that's, you know, all, the word all, and then the rest will be killed. Very clear, right? If you want to take that literally. Premillennialists say that this obviously refers to a literal battle. There are dead bodies in the battlefield, and the birds are feasting on their flesh. But if chapter 19 is interpreted literally... Chapter 20 doesn't make any sense. 
Verse 3 says, Satan is cast into the bottomless pit so that he should deceive the nations no more. How can Satan deceive the nations in chapter 20 when all the nations were destroyed in chapter 19? All, all are dead. All the kings are dead. All the generals are dead. All the soldiers are dead. All the people are dead. And the birds are eating their flesh. Then in chapter 20, it says Satan's going to rule over the nations. What? They were just killed in chapter 19. If you take it literally. <laughs> Do you understand the problems they have? The description of Christ's destruction of those who oppose him in chapter 19 is total. Verse 19 says the birds will eat the flesh of all people. Verse 21 says the rest were killed. The passage emphasizes that Christ will destroy all of his opposition. When the battle is over, no one is left standing. There are no pockets of resistance. If Christ had just obliterated all the nations and all unbelievers are dead, how then does Christ rule over the nations in chapter 20? Chapter 20 assumes that all the nations are still standing. They're still in existence, and that Christ is ruling over these nations. If the nations are completely destroyed in chapter 19, and chapter 20 the nations are still intact, then clearly the premillennial understanding of these chapters is wrong. And once again, the gross inconsistency. We take the Bible literally, you do not. No, they don't take the Bible literally, because if you take it literally, chapter 20 cannot chronologically be following chapter 19. It doesn't work. You see, the literalistic premillennial understanding of the final battle at the end of the millennium also has serious problems. Revelation 20 verse 8 speaks of the vast armies of Gog and Magog. That's supposed to be Russia. All the nations of the earth will gather in the Middle East for a literal battle against Christ and the saints are holed up in Jerusalem. Premillennials say this is a real battle. There's going to be tanks and missiles and nuclear war and weapons and bullets and bombs and missiles and all this stuff. Attack helicopters. Tanks. But this interpretation is absurd. The resurrected Christ with his glorified saints have spiritual bodies. And these glorified immortal saints, and of course Christ is glorified and immortal, they cannot be threatened with physical weapons. Christ and the saints cannot be killed. They are already immortal. They cannot even be hurt by such weapons. After his resurrection, Christ could pass through solid walls. John 20:19. So do you think you're going to threaten Christ with a machine gun or a tank? Or an N-law? Or a harpoon missile? He can't be hurt by those things. And the glorified saints can't be hurt either. They're immortal. They can't be hurt. They can't be killed. They cannot suffer. They cannot die. Bullets, bombs, flamethrowers, nuclear weapons, etc. cannot threaten Christ and the saints at all. All the armies of the world could not harm or be a threat to even one resurrected glorified believer, let alone the all-powerful resurrected Christ. So the idea that Jesus Christ, who is God, possessing all authority and power in heaven and earth, could be threatened by tanks and earthly weapons is simply ridiculous. It's crazy, if you think about it. Well, they'll say, well, but there's also mortal people in Jerusalem, too. Still, even if you hold that position, which we've already proven is false, but even if you hold that position, Christ, and the Christ, who could simply speak the word and create the universe, he's going to be worried about a tank? He's going to be threatened by a tank? You really believe that? The glorified saints who can't die, they're going to worry about bullets coming at them? 
Come on, people. They're simply not literal. They're literal when it suits them, when it fits their paradigm, their heresy, and they're not literal when it doesn't suit them. And then just one more quick thing, and we'll end this. Does the Bible teach that Christ will rule from an earthly Jerusalem or a, in Palestine, in Israel? Is this kingdom postponed until the second coming? Well, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. Christ's kingdom does not originate from an earthly Jerusalem, but from a heavenly one. And when he said, my kingdom is not of this world, he's not saying my kingdom doesn't have any effect in this world. He's simply saying, my kingdom originates from heaven. It's, it's, a, it's a heavenly kingdom. It's, it's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a fleshly, earthly kingdom. That's where the Jews got it wrong in the first coming. They wanted Christ to uh, get a big army and kick out the Romans. And that's not why he came. He came here to establish a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom ruled by the, where the gospel is preached and people obey the law. When Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority is given to you in heaven and earth, Matthew 28, 18. When was the authority given to him? Well, it's, it's aorist tense, it's past tense. At the resurrection, we're told, and I think it's Romans 1, 3. Paul said that Christ was declared to be or appointed the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, Romans 1, 4. Peter said that Christ was enthroned as king in heaven immediately after the resurrection. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make the, your enemies your footstool. Acts 2, 34-35. He's quoting from uh, Psalm 100, 110. Daniel prophesied that in the days of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, God would set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Daniel 2, 44. Jesus preached repeatedly, as did John the Baptist before him, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right around the corner. It's right here. It's at the door. Mark 3, 2, uh, Matthew 3, 2, Mark 1, 15, Luke 4, 43. He gave no indication of some earthly kingdom over 2,000 years in the future, but spoke of a spiritual kingdom, which is to begin immediately after his resurrection. If Christ had an earthly kingdom in mind, where he ruled as a dictator with an army and a police force, why did he emphatically reject the kingdom offered to him by the Jews? John 6, 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him to force him to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. What do the dispensationalists teach? They teach that Jesus uh, came to be an earthly king, came to rule with political power and, and bullets and bombs, but the Jews rejected him as their king. No, the Jews wanted to make him king, but they wanted to make him a carnal, earthly king. After... after uh, the manner of Putin, after the manner of Hitler. And Jesus had wanted nothing to do with that. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. From the very outset, Jesus was not merely gave no encouragement to, but quite definitely opposed the expectation of the Jews that an earthly Jewish kingdom of glory, such as David had established centuries before, was about to be set up. The Bible does not teach that we are to wait and look forward to a time when Christ will rule from an earthly Jerusalem, Rather, it teaches that Christ is already king and that he is already rules from heaven. Ephesians 1, 20-21, God has raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in an age to come. What do kings do? They place at their right hand those that they want to honor. 
or who, with whom they associate with themselves in dominion. Jesus Christ, the exalted Redeemer, has universal dominion. What he achieved definitively by his death and resurrection is now being progressively realized to the whole earth through spiritual means, the preaching of the gospel, regeneration of hearts, not through bullets, not through bombs, not through riding around with swords. He has nothing to do with that. Now, if a nation becomes a Christian nation and institutes God's law, that's great. For the kingdom is to permeate every aspect of life. We are to have Christian businesses. We're to have Christian economics. We're to have Christian view of history. We're to have Christian view of science and biology, etc. Yes, that's good. But that is done through the teaching of the Word of God. It's done through spiritual means, not by bullets and bombs and force. Putin is the way of force. That's satanic sodomite. If one interprets Revelation 29 literally, with Christ ruling from an earthly Jerusalem, then one has chosen an interpretation which contradicts the whole New Testament. The whole New Testament. Paul wrote, Our citizenship is in heavens, Philippians 3.20. Christians belong to the Jerusalem which is above. The earthly Jerusalem corresponds to the Hagar who is in bondage, Galatians 4.26. Christians are exhorted to go outside of the earthly Jerusalem. Hebrews 13.13-14. 13, 13 For here on earth we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Are the saints to look forward to Christ establishing an earthly Jerusalem, an earthly kingdom, a carnal kingdom? Not at all. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country, for he's prepared a city for them. Hebrews eleven sixteen. So what then does the camp of the saints and the beloved city in Revelation 20, 20 verse 9 refer the camp of the saints in the beloved city, therefore, certainly represents the church and the people of God, and they represent the entire church and the whole world, even in heaven. John says that the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, Revelation 21.2, and this is an obvious reverence, reference to the church. He also equates the new Jerusalem with the Lamb's wife, Revelation 21.9-10, which is the church. Prior to the second coming, the Lamb's wife, the bride, the new Jerusalem, exists in heaven and on earth. Thus, John, in apocalyptic language, is describing the final attack of Satan's forces against the church. The nations of Gog and Magog, in encompassing about and coming to battle against Christendom in its widest sense, certainly intend to destroy the beloved city, the cause of Christ, and to make paganism supreme in the world, atheism, secular humanism. And this they re re reveal in their wickedness and become ripe for judgment. Who's the enemy of Biden and the Democrats? Who's the enemy of secular humanists and atheists? Who's the enemy of all Satanists? The church, the true church, Bible-believing Christians, not, not the liberal churches that have sodomite pastors and lesbian pastors and sodomite marriage and all kinds of gross perversions and they're satanic to the very core. The true church. That makes sense. And it harmonizes those things in Revelation uh, 19 and 20, which if you take literally don't make any sense at all. And we'll wrap this up. <clears throat> One more thing. And we'll wrap it up. The Bible teaches that Christ is not on earth when the fire falls from heaven to destroy the wicked at the end of the millennium. He returns from heaven in flaming fire. That's what the Bible says. And because the Bible says that, premillennialism cannot be true. It cannot be true. Why is that? Well, Revelation 20, verse 9, describes the end of the millennium and not its beginning. 
they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, according to popular premillennial teaching, Jesus and the saints are holed up behind the walls of Jerusalem, surrounded by a vast army, and then God the Father rescues Jesus and the saints by destroying the vast armies of Gog and Magog. The idea that the resurrected Christ and the glorified saints need to be rescued from an attack by guns and tanks, of course, as we noted, is totally absurd. Are there other passages in the Bible that help us understand the passage? And the answer is yes, there are many passages. Listen to how Isaiah, the prophet, describes the second coming of Christ. This is 66, 15 to 16. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by the, his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh. And Paul teaches that Christ will return. When he returns, it will be in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Where's Christ coming from? From heaven. With the angels. From heaven. The angels aren't living in Jerusalem with the saints. They're, they come from heaven with Christ. Peter says, 2 Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And Paul warns Christians that when Christ returns, their works will be tested by fire. 1 Corinthians 3.13-15, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work, of what sort it is. If anyone's work that he has built on endures, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So where is Christ? When the fire falls from heaven in judgment on the wicked? Is he on earth in Jerusalem? In a literal earthly city, as premillennials assert? And the answer is absolutely not. Christ cannot be in Jerusalem because he returns in flaming fire. Isaiah, Thessalonians, Peter, Paul, the Gospels. He comes from heaven in flaming fire with his angels. Thus, according to the abundant testimony of Scripture, Revelation 20, verse 9, refers to the second coming of Christ. Why is this significant? Because it means that Christ returns at the end of the millennium. Christ's coming is post-millennial. Christ is not saved by flaming fire. He returns in flaming fire. If the clear passages of Scripture are allowed to interpret the unclear, the Bible teaches a post-millennial return of Christ. Case closed. Premillennialism is a heresy. It's just not supported by Scripture. And the evidence for it is so weak is so bad, is so contradictory to the Gospels and the Epistles that it's just mind-boggling that people still believe in it. But that's what they're taught, unfortunately. They're taught a lot of bad things. I mean, they're taught Arminianism and the Evangelical. Evangelical churches are not evangelical in that they teach a false version of salvation. This idea that men cooperate with God's grace and they save themselves by an autonomous act of the free will. When we're dead in trespasses and sins, we're saved solely by Christ who sends a spirit into our hearts, regenerating them, enabling us to see the truth, enabling us to believe the truth, and bending our hearts to love the truth. But we'll end there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, help us to be holy and prepare for that day. We know Christ is going to come back. We know he's coming back in flaming fire. We know he's coming back to judge the whole world. We know that there are no second chances once he comes back. Lord, help us to love your word. Cause us to obey your law. Cause us to love your moral commandments. Cause us to walk according to them. And when we do slip and fall and when we do sin, cause us to repent and die daily immediately. 
and confess our sins, for we sin every day. And we know that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because of his precious blood. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.